Um, <clears throat> should we pray? Should we look at God's word together? Father God, we just thank you. Thank you for this morning, Lord. Thank you for that reminder about choices and about decisions, and about the need to take everything to you in prayer. And Father, that song that we sang afterwards, it's just a timely reminder that Lord, so often we live this life in our own strength, and uh, Lord, rather than coming again to the cross of Christ, Lord, knowing that our strength comes only from you because of the death and the resurrection of our Saviour, Jesus Christ. So, Father God, just this morning, remind us, Lord, of the gospel. Remind us, Lord, of the importance of that message, Father, and what it means for us. Father, bless us now as we look at your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, in just a few months, it will be Easter. Um, not very long now, we'll be... We, uh, back here on Good Friday and Easter Sunday, and as Christians, we'll cast our minds back, won't we, over Easter to the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. On Good Friday, like every year, we will pause and we'll allow the horror of the cross of Christ, the Roman cross, to really impact us. On Good Friday, particularly, we will feel uh, the nails as they drove, drive through his hands and his feet. We'll gasp at the crown made of thorns plunged into his skull. And we'll shudder as the whip known as the cat and nine tails rips his back to pieces. But then, as that weekend goes on, we'll rejoice that this Jesus on that cross was fully man. Our representative, our perfect representative. That he was fully man, but also fully God. Two natures in one broken flesh. Our sacrificial lamb of God, as he was known, dying for us and our sin. This is our gospel. This is our good news. A man dying on a cross and rising again on the third day. Christ dying for the ungodly and the lost so that all can go free. A few weeks ago we heard a quote, or I told you a quote, uh, by somebody I've forgotten, Martin Luther I think, that said we must be reminded of the gospel every day because we forget it every day. How easy it is to be a gospel-less Christian. How easy it is to proclaim an empty message that does absolutely nothing to transform a person's life. How easy it is to attend church but never take up our cross. How easy it is to be here Sunday by Sunday in a connect group at prayer meetings but never die to our old life, never actually turn from our sin and follow Jesus Christ truly. A friend of mine, um, well, a guy I met, I don't, didn't know him that well, um, he was a vicar of a church in Croydon, where I came from before I came here. And uh, he ran this particular Church of England church, and his PCC used to drive him half the distraction whenever they met. But he began to get quite frustrated with his church, because he realised they had no taste, no appetite for mission, no appetite to take the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of the cross, his death of sin, for sin, and his resurrection from the grave. They had no taste to take that out into the world. And so in a moment of frustration, he pointed to the cross on the wall during one PCC meeting and said, how about we take that down and call ourselves St. John's Social Club? And to his horror, there were one or two that actually thought that was a good idea. This morning, are we a gospel-less church? Not are we a busy church, are we an active church or a well-liked church? Are we a gospel-less church? Are we gospel-less Christians? Does your faith feel flat this morning? Does it feel lifeless, like hair that badly needs conditioning or a balloon that's slowly deflating? 
This morning, maybe all of us just need to return to Calvary, to the place of the skull, and to watch and to hear and to feel the death of God the Son dying in your place, accepting it all over again, living it out and sharing that message with others. So often the gospel that we preach is an easy listening message, an easy listening gospel, but it's meant to be life-changing. Apparently Glasgow University, you'll know this if you get Christianity magazine, apparently Glasgow University, if you can believe it, have given the gospel message, the crucifixion, a health warning, saying to their theology students that you might find this upsetting. Can you believe it? As if someone studies theology not knowing they're going to encounter the cross of Jesus Christ and nails through wrists and feet and spears through his side and betrayal by his greatest friends. As if you're not going to encounter that. But they say you may find parts of the crucifixion too upsetting. But in our attempt to not upset people, have we lost the plot? Have we lost the plot to the greatest story in human history? Indeed, the gospel should come with a health warning, that it is the most wonderfully, dangerously, uh, terrifying, life-changing moment in history, that following Christ is the most terrifying thing you will ever do, and you may lose your life as you carry your cross, but you will gain heaven in return. And so today, I just want to remind us of the gospel. And if you're thinking I'm preaching to the converted, but you're wrong, because in every single church, There is no such thing as 100% who follow Jesus. There are many people who attend churches who would say we're Christian, but have never actually asked Christ into their life. I know a friend of mine ran an evangelism training course, or it was somewhere in Thurrock, and they invited about 20 churches, 400 people, Christians, attended and attended to sort of learn how to share their faith. And about, about 50 of them became Christians halfway through. Because you can attend church and be a gospel-less Christian. I'm going to use those four points that Andrew Hawkins alluded to in his wrist um, in, in his talk last week. And just four images, four points. And the first one is simply that God loves me or God loves you. The heart of our message, the heart of our good news as Christians is that God is love. 1 John chapter 4 verse 16. John writes these words. It says, and so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. God is love. In the 21st century, people are love-starved, aren't they? We chase love, but often the love people are chasing is actually warped. It's a messed up kind of love. It's not a groovy kind of love that Phil Collins uh, preached about all those years ago. It's a warped kind of love. Often people chase something more akin to pleasure and gratification than a love that actually genuinely changes your life. That love can only be found in the living God. When people are loved, they're healthy. When people find real love, they're happy. But when people are unloved, they're lonely, they're broken, and they're lost. I know a a couple of Christians who go and visit um, some people that are in a, in, a, in a hospital. And there's one particular lady that these Christians I know go and visit, and she's essentially trapped in her own body. She has one of those conditions, a neurological condition, where she can't really control her mouth or her lips or her hands or her legs, and she's essentially trapped in her own body. And they don't know her very well. In fact, they hardly know her. 
And I know that when they go and visit her, at least one of them struggles with the thought that maybe she's saying in her mind, go away, leave me alone, I don't want to talk to you, stop prattling on at me. And uh, and I know that they struggle with that. And apparently when they left last time, as they left, she reached out her hands as best she could and grabbed hold of one of them and gave her a cuddle and grabbed hold of the other and kissed his hand. Just that little bit of affection, that little bit of kindness, that little bit of love in a very small way was appreciated by that woman perhaps more than they realized. And the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel message, starts not with the message God doesn't like you, but actually that God loves you. For sure, our God is holy. We make no uh, uh, attempt to hide the holiness of God, nor should we. God is holy and just, and the Bible says he will deal with every single sin that has ever been committed either on your shoulders or on the shoulders of his son. But the gospel message starts not with God hates you, but with God loves you, even though you might hate him first. Why does God love you? Psalm 139, verse 13, says this. For you created my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. We are God's workmanship. We are God's creation. We are made in the image of God. And God's base emotion, foundation emotion for us is one of love, not one of dislike, sorry George, uh, or one of hate or anything like that. I think that was an amen. That was a hallelujah actually. I'll take that. Um, I'm a a terrible father. Um, You know that. Um, I've been a dad now for 13 years. That's why I have a teenager which is, yeah, please pray for me and Andrea. Um, I already feel worried about what's coming next. Um, but I have a teenage son and a daughter that will be doing the same thing sometime next year. Um, but I'm a terrible father. Um, and I'll tell you why. This is one of those secret pats on my own back, isn't it? Um, because I love them. And I'm unbelievably inconsistent when I tell them off. Because they do bad things only once a year. We're perfect. We're like the Waltons. Um, if you go past my house at 10 o'clock, you hear, good night, Dad, good night, Jack, good night, Hannah, good night, Hannah. Good night, Jack. Good night, Hannah. Anyway, it's beautiful. Um, but don't, please don't walk past the house that often because you may hear the occasional yelling. Um, but, so I'm very good at saying, right, that's it. That's the last time you'd ever do that. No Xbox for three days. And they go, oh. And then they're nice to me. And then by the evening, they're, they're nice and they're polite and they've said sorry. And, and I say, oh, go on then. Let's have one game of FIFA. And then before you know it, they've got the better of me. I really am a terrible father. But you know why I'm a terrible father? Because I don't hate them. Because my base emotion to my children isn't that I dislike them and they've got to appease my anger. So I love them. And I punish them when they're naughty. And I forgive them the moment I get a hint that they're sorry. God isn't inconsistent, of course. And there's nothing like me in his fatherhood. But his foundation is to us is love. You say to people, God loves you, and they say, no, he doesn't. Surely God can't love me. If you knew what I'd done, God wouldn't love me, and nor would you. I had a friend. (laughs) Sorry, let me rephrase that. I've got a friend. And um, years and years ago, we had a conversation. And uh, and we were on holiday together, and he began to share something that he did when he was a lot younger. And he felt ashamed of this thing that he'd done. Uh, And it, it bugged him for years and years and years and years and years. And he knew I was a Christian. I was talking about Jesus. He's not a Christian yet. And uh, we were talking, and he said to me, well, God wouldn't love me if he knew this thing that I'd done. Jesus wouldn't love me. And he told me what it was, and it was quite bad. But I said to him, mate, 
If Jesus was walking with us at this precise moment, I reckon he'd actually give you a cuddle. God's love is the beginning of our message of hope. In Romans chapter 8, verses 34, no, hang on, 38 to 39. Hang on. 38 to 39, we read this about God's love. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither anything in the past nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ our Lord. Nothing can separate us from God's love. And it's interesting that when the New Testament writers came to write about the most perfect expression of the love of God, the story of Jesus' death and resurrection, they virtually invented a brand new word for love, a word called agape, a word that was kind of around in Greek but had never really properly ever been used. And the New Testament writers took that Greek word that means self-sacrificial love and they made it a Christian word, the most unique definition for the love of God. And it's interesting that when Jesus calls his disciples to be his church, in John chapter 13, verse 34 to 30 love, 30 love, 35, sorry, that's a Freudian slip, wasn't it? Um, he commands us to be a people of love. This is a new command I give to you. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And I've not written this next point, but let me make a point. If you are a Christian here this morning and you do not love someone else in this room, you are disobeying the King of Kings. If any of us hate anyone else in this church, it is a sin of biblical proportions. Because the kingdom of God is meant to have the DNA of God's love running through the core like a stick of rock. And if we don't love each other, and I don't mean tolerate each other, that's rubbish. Who tolerates someone? Loves one another. We are breaking a holy command of God. Because they won't see that we're the people of God if we don't love each other. It's how they will recognize that we are different to the rest of the world. So point one is good news. God loves me, God loves you. The second, after this good news, comes, unfortunately, some bad news. That I have sinned, we have all sinned. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, lays out a sobering truth for every single human being, whether they accept it or not. He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every human being has done something that they shouldn't have done. Everybody has sinned. You might say, well, I've never robbed a bank. I've never shot anybody. I've never defrauded anybody. But it doesn't matter what you've done, small or large, everyone has sinned and has fallen short of the glory of God. If you imagine God's holiness to be like a pane of glass, whether you throw a rock through it or a stone, if the stone smashes it or the rock smashes it, it's smashed. If you break God's commands, whether small ways or big ways, you still have broken his law. That is sin that needs to be dealt with. Only Christ can deal with that. There were three church ministers at a minister's convention. That probably is as boring as it sounds. Um, a, a minister's convention. They were sitting there and they decided, why don't we get some coffee together and let's have a sharing time. I think I've told this before, but never mind. You can just laugh out of politeness. Um, and they sat down. Let's confess our sins to one another like the Bible says. And let's have a real kind of deep friendship together. So one kind of tentatively said, oh, I'll go first. 
I'll tell you my greatest sin. I just love to gamble. I love it. Whenever I go out of town, it's all cha-ching, cha-ching, and I'm on the slots and the one-armed bandits. I love it. Gambling's awesome. That was his first sin. They will turn to the second minister, and he said, all right, I'll go next. He said, my sin is that I'm just lazy. I hate working. All my sermons that you all think are great, I get them off the internet. They're somebody else's, and I just repeat them. I don't do that. Um, and then they all looked at the third one, and they thought, I wonder what he's going to share. And he said, well, my secret sin is gossip. And boy, I can't wait to get out of this room. (laughs) But sin is our problem. Small or large, wide or whatever it is, everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Sin drives us from each other, ruins our relationships, ruins our perspectives, ruins our jobs, ruins our health, ruins everything. But it ruins our relationship with God. We are pushed away. We are separated from a holy God. Romans chapter 6 verse 23 puts it in no uncertain terms when Paul says this, the wages of sin is death. The result of sin is death. Physical death came because of sin. It's not just a natural thing that we die. It is a result of our sin as human beings. Spiritual death is a result of sin. That darkness that we have inside, that comes from our sin. Lives are broken on this planet. Just look in the mirror Turn on the TV. Sin means life is ruined on earth. Our eternal destination has been changed from heaven to hell. To not enjoy God's presence, but to live with our sin forever. Humanity has a problem. The left can't fix it. The right can't fix it. Trump can't sign an executive order and change it. Brexit won't let you escape from it. But God has given the most amazing solution. Number three, that Christ died for me. Jesus died for me in his earthly life. We see in Jesus both the good news of God's love and the bad news of our sin. And they interact at the cross. When he died on the cross, the wrath and mercy met. When Jesus' blood was shed, forgiveness from God became available for every sin and every one. He died for our sin. He died for yours and mine. He died your death. His death on the cross, the agony that he went through was your agony. It was your fault and my fault. My agony was his agony. My sin was on his shoulders. His loneliness, his betrayal, everything should have been me. But he did it for me. That's the gospel message. He atoned for my wrong. He redeems us from the darkness. That's the message that you're fundamentally lost. But Christ gave it all up so you could be found. Isaiah 53 verse 6 says this. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, and each has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, we read this. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He knew the cost of our salvation, and he paid with his life. John chapter 3, verse 16 to 18. John writes these wonderful words. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, 
but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Zoe ended her talk by making that point that the most vital decision or choice that you can ever make is to follow Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour. The good news of his death and resurrection, the gospel, is only news until you ask Jesus into your life. It is never good news. It's interesting news before you ask Christ to be your Lord and Saviour. Until you do that, that message, that death, can do nothing for you. Salvation from sin can't be done to you. It was done for you. So how do you become a Christian? Romans chapter 10, verse 9 to 10. Paul writes this. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning the faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. You must decide. The message of Jesus' death and resurrection can only change your life when it's believed in faith and when Jesus Christ is followed. You must decide today who you serve. You must decide who you follow. When I was 11 years old, I attended a church youth club in Good Maze Baptist Church. None of you will know it. Um, well, you might know it. But, um, and I went there with my brother. I went for the... Uh, I had the the carrot of going to spring harvest my brother said to me don't come to church because you might go to spring harvest I went to church because we could have gone to spring harvest and we never went to spring harvest which is quite annoying and uh, and we used to go around this woman's house on a Sunday night and uh, halfway through one of the sessions she said to me come with me okay so we went into a back room just the two of us and she said to me would you like to become a Christian I said what are you talking about what does that even mean And she said to me, she explained as best she could the gospel. She did a much better job than I remember, I'm sure. She said to me, if you trust in Jesus, you're forgiven of all your sin. And when you die, you get to go to heaven. And I said, what, if I was hanging off the side of a cliff and I prayed a prayer, I'd still go to heaven, because I was 11. And then she said, yes. And I said, well, that sounds good. And she led me in a very simple prayer. I asked Jesus to be in my life. I said, sorry for my sin. And that day I became a Christian. Do you know what happened next? Nothing. I went home. And I thought I'd better start attending church regularly. And since I'm a Christian, I'd better read my Bible and pray. And I began doing both, all three of those things, should I say. And then something happened. God became right in the middle of my life. And my life has never been the same since. I only stand here this morning because Maria Martelli gave me an opportunity to ask Jesus Christ into my life. In fact, my wife, my children, and my experiences would not be there either if it weren't for that one decision when I was 11 years old. Why am I telling you this this morning? Am I not surely preaching to the converted? No. Certainly not. If you think I've preached to you and you're converted, then you've misunderstood the gospel. This is the beginning, middle and end of Christianity. This is our good news. This is God's solution to a world that is wrecked. If Christians stay silent on the cross of Christ... As the world falls apart around us, we have failed the generation that we've been born into. If you're not telling people that Jesus died for them to redeem them and save them, 
by sacrificing himself when we are failing our world. But maybe this morning some of you are yet to make that decision. Maybe some of you have been coming for 30 years and you've never actually prayed that prayer and asked Jesus into your life. What are you waiting for? Why come and not follow? Church will do nothing for you. Guarantee you. Christ and his church will. So we're going to have communion in a moment. But I'm just going to say a prayer. I want to pray two prayers, actually. One will be for anyone here that would like to become a Christian. You don't have to stand up or put your hand up or anything like that. But I'll ask you just to pray it in your mind, in your heart. And then tell me afterwards. Tell me afterwards. You'll profess with your mouth that you've done it. So it's not enough just to keep it a secret. You've got to tell somebody. And we'll talk. We'll meet, meet up and have coffee and chat. And then we'll pray a second prayer for those of us that are already Christians, for an opportunity to share the gospel this week. So let's do the first one first. And if you'd like to pray it with me, just pray it quietly in your own heart, just line by line. Lord God, I believe that you're real. And even though I've got loads of questions, I know that this is true. I believe that you sent your son I believe that he died for me. I believe that he rose again. And I thank you that you love me. So I say sorry for my sin. And I want to ask Jesus to be my king this morning. I give you my life. Be in it. Be its center. I want to be one of your people. Amen. If you prayed that, please don't go home without talking to me afterwards. And let's say a second prayer about the gospel. And again, you can just repeat it or just say amen at the end. Father God, we thank you for the gospel message. Thank you, Lord, that you sent your son. Thank you, Lord, that he wasn't just a man. That he was God the son. Thank you, Lord, that he gave his life willingly. Thank you, Lord, that his death is the only solution to the darkness and the sin on this earth. Father, I recommit myself to you. I recommit myself to the spreading of this message. Father, even though I'm weak, even though I'm frightened, even though I'm not wise, I ask you, Lord, for your strength and your words and that this week you would give me an opportunity to share this gospel message with somebody my children, my family my work colleagues somebody at a bus stop but Lord may I not be closed off from sharing the message of life to those who are dying I ask this in Jesus name Amen We're going to listen to a song actually before we take um, communion. Um, just going to be on the screen. It's uh, sung by a woman called Joni Erickson um, Tarda. Um, you may have known she's a um, quadriplegic, I believe. Um, a terrible accident when she was very young and she's been paralyzed from the neck down virtually um, most of all of her life, pretty much. And she is the most wonderful woman. She's written this song uh, just to bring it all together. Um, you may want to just take a moment just to focus on what we've spoken about, what we've prayed about. 
But this will just play, and then when we've done this, we'll have communion afterwards. So if we just listen to this. I'm alone, yet not alone. God's the light that will guide me home. With his love and tenderness, leading through the So much. 